Hello and welcome to Movie Maker. I'm your sometime host, Caleb Hammond, and today we are looking at the pioneer lesbian romance, The World to Come. We had a full house for this pod, and joining me for the conversation were director Mona Fassbold, producer and star Casey Affleck, and co-star Catherine Watterson. This film could not be more Movie Maker. It's a period piece shot on a shoestring budget up in the mountains of Romania on 16mm film. Watching the movie, you really sense that supreme attention to detail that was paid to every frame in this truly special film. In the conversation that follows, the four of us discuss the long process of slowly writing the film and getting it greenlit, Vanessa Kirby, who broke her ankle early in production, and how that changed her performance, and also how Catherine Waterston approached doing voiceover for the first time in this film. So without further delay, here's our talk on The World to Come. Casey, Catherine, and Mona, I want to welcome you guys to the Movie Maker Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Just off the bat, I am interested in sort of the origins of this project, Casey, with uh, Ron Hansen and Jim Shepard. What did that look like from the start? How did you get Ron involved in Jim's short story? And uh, how did that go? I had done a movie called The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford that was based on Ron Hansen's novel by the same name. Andrew Dominic uh, adapted it. I had read all of Ron's books and I knew that he was a great writer and knew that he could write a screenplay. So I asked him if he wanted to work on something together. And he sent me a couple of stories, both by Jim Shepard, who I didn't know. And one of them was The World to Come. And I loved it. So we started Ron and I would meet uh, whenever he was coming through LA, usually at like some weird restaurant that he liked by the airport. Maybe he doesn't remember it that way, but I do. And we talked on the phone a lot and I mostly interacted with Ron and he interacted with Jim. Uh, And then uh, I started to talk to Jim more and together over years and years because they were doing other things like teaching and writing novels and stuff, they produced this screenplay. I didn't have very much to do with it looking back on it other than to be a cheerleader. I don't think that I gave any creative input that actually arrived on the screen, but I was a good cheerleader. And I had the sense to know that what they were doing was was really great, beautiful, moving stuff. And then uh, at some point I made a little production company with Amazon and we had um, someone named Whitaker later worked for me and she suggested the great Mona Fastfold, who I also didn't know because I hadn't seen Sleepwalker because I was entering a period of my life where I just wasn't watching anything. Mona, we talked to and then she, we met in person. She was really passionate about it and was very articulate about it all. And her movie was great. And made perfect sense. And then she said, I want to hire Vanessa Kirby and Kath- or Catherine Watterson, and then later Vanessa Kirby and Chris Abbott. And I thought, this, this is a real mistake. I don't even know these people. They, yeah, I was like, what? The what? The alien? The what? No, I'm kidding. Um, I thought they're never going to do this. Catherine's never going to come to this little movie. Why would she? And then she said yes. And then she had a baby. And then she said, please wait for me. And I said, no way, we're not waiting. We're going on, we're, we're, we're gonna, we'll find bigger and better. 
Um, but, no, but then I, they couldn't. I didn't say that. And then I'm going to just take up all the time on the podcast telling this story. And then... It's um, riveting. <laughs> and then we waited. Mona said, we have to. She's... She's so brilliant. And I said, I know, we're so incredibly lucky to have her. Um, and then I said, Mona, this is how movies get made. Everybody's super positive all the time and patient and enthusiastic and everybody agrees about everything. So that's nice. In a second, you can get the Genesis account from Catherine and then from Mona and they'll all be totally different. Um, and then I said, Mona, if you should cast somebody else for my part. And she said, no, no. No, I must. I must have you. And I said, ah, oh, fine. There's fine. only one man. <laughs> uh, and then we were off and running. And it took about 12 years to get the financing, uh, which was $673 to make the movie. <laughs> and there it was. That's basically... And it all went to the 16 millimeter film. All seven. <laughs> every, every single dime. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And the true parts were, I said, we'll never get Catherine. She's too good. And that Mona was just really brilliant and smart about everything she wanted to do with the movie. And that we shot it in Romania for 600 bucks. End scene. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, and I think... I mean, there are a number of things that stand out to me about this film. Uh, the, you know, the four performances being a big one. Um, another big thing, I think, is that idea that this is, you know, an indie project. It was shot for, what, 24 days? Is that correct? Yeah, 24 yep. days. And you're shooting all four seasons and you're shooting on film and you're shooting in Romania. You know, I think from a movie maker standpoint, Movie Maker Magazine, a lot of what you hear people say is, you know, kind of scale down your vision, uh, you know, make something that you can make it, you know, have a conversation in a room. So I, you know, I always have to appreciate, you know, films where you see such a big vision, such scale in something that is a smaller project. I think that's, I think that's really correct that you constantly, I mean, as a filmmaker too, everybody says, don't shoot on film, don't shoot on location, don't reach for, you know, um, the cast that you want. It's just, it's constantly you're being told to, to try and think small. And I think that's like the hardest thing about my generation of filmmakers is that we are, being told to to make movies that takes place inside of a living room on a couch you know uh and and that's not very exciting to me you have to you really have to fight to to make it you know to to make it um make something that's exciting and cinematic so but then luckily there's a bunch of you know actors who are just dying to do that kind of stuff you know little do, do, do you know that they don't want to just sit on couches and eat sandwiches and talk about their feelings they, they want to you know be part of a, a universe and as Casey always says like you want to time travel and and get to 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 do something that's like you know exciting and that way um even though it's hard but you know it was it's it's a, it was a challenging shoot for me <laughs> and for my crew especially and I think at times really tough on the cast as well because we don't because we had such a tight schedule Romania is such a beautiful place to shoot it's, the nature is you know incredible and the landscape there is so so amazing but um but you know it's it's remote so it was really hard to carry things um you know up a hill or even you know, I didn't want to 
yeah and you don't want you don't want tire tracks for example on my location because i was constantly moving around it and i had to move around it quickly so i couldn't like mess up everything with tire tracks that i would then have to try and remove later in special effects or something like that so so just carrying things you know carrying things uh down instead of driving it down like say things like that it was like very very challenging for the sake of full disclosure mm -hmm. i was one of those people who said do not shoot on film I landed on the side of don't don't do that because I, I had my reasons mostly because I felt like time. I don't remember that. Yeah, mm. I was like, this is def definitely <laughs> shoot on video because it, and so my first decision as a producer was was wrong and and ignored. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember. But yeah. oh. I just thought you'd have more. It was sort of selfish choice because I thought like you have more time as an actor. If you're shooting on film, you just end up, it takes, it takes longer, you know, but I'm glad that Mona stuck to her guns there and that uh, I caved and we ended up shooting on film because it does look very, it's nice to see things that way. And I was, Caleb, on your website, I saw something that said some other movie that went out to 16, they shot digitally and then they went out to 16. What was that? It's a Sundance movie, but it's sort of related in this sense, Strawberry Mansion. That's a movie where you could see like, you know, they had no money and they made this mm. movie inspired by like Terry Gilliam with all these different mm. locations and worlds. And but they did a film out where they shot digitally and then they took it to this to Color Lab in Baltimore and got it processed on 16. I mean, yeah. it's really expensive. Really? So you mostly only see like commercials and music videos doing right. it because they're only yeah. doing it for like three minutes as opposed to mm. like 90. So they finished it digitally and then they got someone to give them money that, who liked it and wanted to pay for it to, to then go output on 16 yeah and that because the movie was shot in 16.9 they had to like squash it to 4.3 for 16 with their yeah. algorithm and then stretch wow. it back out with the reverse algorithm it's it's yeah. pretty cool but you know it's the limitations can be pleasurable and sometimes really helpful for actors to have multiple takes but sometimes you find when you have these limitations that they they force you into a kind of work that might be uncomfortable, but not isn't, you know, by any means necessarily less good. I tried to slip a little joke in there when Mona was talking about <laughs> lugging things up the mountain. I, I said Vanessa because she'd broken her ankle on the first day of shooting. And so sometimes <laughs> she was being lugged as well as the camera equipment. But, you know, she she broke her ankle and she had imagined that this was a person who could fill up the room and come storming through the door. And then she was actually forced to sit in a chair for many of the scenes. And that limitation actually... I thought it made her feel so powerful. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm going to show my power by sort of marching around the place. But being able to sort of sit in that power calmly was like so um, debilitating to me in some of those scenes, totally, totally overwhelming um, to be on the receiving end of. And I think it really served the film. But obviously on the day there was that she felt frustrated. So yeah. sometimes it's uncomfortable, but actually leads mm -hmm. to something really interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, I think also because, you know, yeah, we, uh, Vanessa and I talked a lot about how she was supposed to move into Abigail's space and take it over and as if it were, were her own space that she should be, as you know, as we progress, she should be as comfortable in your kitchen as you would be and like really kind of like take, you know, just like be so like familiar mm. in a way. And she just couldn't any of that physically. So instead she mm. had to just kind of 
plant herself there and and stay still. And I, I ended up loving that. I ended up. Do you loving, know what's interesting about it that yeah. I've never thought about before yeah. is that it's actually a lot like the way that Dyer uses the space. Uh huh. A woman in in the home in that period is always mm-hmm. moving around the space, and so originally the idea was that Tally being comfortable in the space would be her moving around it like a woman. But actually, then she ends up kind of taking sort of the more of the period, the sort of traditionally male role of sitting there and waiting to be attended to, which is quite, quite I, I like that. I like that a lot. But I, I must bring it back to film just for one second, because I, I do have to say, though, that on the schedules that, you know, usually films like this have, you like even if I were shooting digital, I couldn't just roll and roll and roll. You know, no, it's not still wouldn't. Have I, don't, I don't have. I don't have like I wouldn't have had more takes had I been shooting digital. Maybe half a take more, you know, or something like that. Or or I mean, but it's not. It's not really. It's not uh, that sort of luxury of like all those. You know, having that time. That's something that you guys enjoy on like the big movies that you do, like the really big ones. But What's these, your take on it in terms of lighting, though? Doesn't does is that a factor? No, it's just like a different. Just a different light. No, I would have taken just as much time with the light had it been any any format, because it's you know you can use less light with with uh, with digital, but you want to be just as specific because we right. have a specific look we were going sure. for. So, right. which was basically lighting in a way so that it could be very dark. Right. And, uh, so basically, the only thing that's different is that it's a little bit more dangerous when you're working on film because all of a sudden it can, you know you we want it to be right on the edge of mm-hmm. like what would turn you know grainy and ugly and mm-hmm. what would be super beautiful i sort yeah. of enjoyed the being sort of included in the the hell and the tension that the director is dealing with <laughs> on this film in terms of 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 the use of film because we some days had a limited amount of film or we were running out of film I don't know. It raised the stakes in ways that I think, yeah, like I've said before, it was really uncomfortable, but also it was kind of a collaborative, felt really inclusive. You know, Mona would crouch down next to me and I think she's about to give me this really moving note. And she's like, listen, there's only a few meters left of film. <laughs> you don't have to switch. So it's, like, so it's like, so all due respect, please don't fuck up this next take. You know what I mean? And I kind of enjoyed, it was like, it was like being on a sports team, you know, when you're mm-hmm. like, you've got to make this goal. <laughs> and I, I, I enjoyed it. Film has such texture, which I think it's an overused term when it comes to films. But I think shooting on film is obviously a way to get texture. But I also think like those title cards are a very small thing. I have so much texture. I think mm-hmm. the credits with, you know, it looks like it's on like a parchment of linen or something. Talk about the visual influences i know there was a painter that you mentioned in your sundance q a it's something that I, I i was obsessed with throughout the film was the texture of paper so all of the you know all the credits the credits for the film everything is is uh hand drawn by a calligrapher on a paper that's like treated and you know multiple you know times and stained and aged and it was all these things are just like uh, all these tiny little details that i wanted to hopefully help transport you to into this universe and into this sort of the time period but uh, no I was I was looking at um, a photographer 
um, uh, P.H. Emerson a lot and pictures his pictures of farmers and 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 uh, some of those like very very early early photographers and how their, their use of light because of um, how uh, long the um, you call it in English, yeah. look it in the shutters you know like that's sort of how that affects the light and the texture as well so it may it almost looks painter-like and then I, I really um, I was looking at a lot of pictures by Uda Krog who's a Norwegian painter from the exact same time period and she her paintings of women and their children and the same also Christian Krog as well both of them sort of doing a lot of farm life and also just like intimate pictures of families that I've really enjoyed the light of and also all the colors and sort of the the whole sort of universe of that. The the paper and those intermissions there's like obviously the ledger is part of the story of this film and like the you know Casey's mm-hmm. uh, character's ledger and then Catherine's character kind of leads this voiceover which kind of has like a diary aspect I mean I don't know if it's explicitly ever meant to be a diary but there are both of those I did appreciate uh, Casey's character, the kind of cluelessness at times that I found kind of comical. There's a great voiceover where Catherine talks about her father's ledger and then he's, you're writing in your ledger and then you're like, Are, am I even in that? And then you're like, it's not what it's for. You like kind of yell it in exasperation. Talk about getting I think getting that's into- a really timeless scene, by the way. Just, <laughs> yeah. just how it illustrates how what goes on in our mind plays just the, the relationship with what goes on in our mind and our and our intimate relationships you know you have half the conversation by yourself and yeah, then you yeah. sort of attack your partner who is completely <laughs> unaware of the goings on of your mind and then you stomp off offended they have no idea what's just hit them <laughs> um I, you know it's just so so brilliantly told yeah i couldn't help but think yeah. that like ron or jim someone had that exact exchange at home with their partner and it was like i'm putting that in you know what i mean they're sitting there writing and their partner but came there's by. so much of the script that impresses me on this level that you sympathize with both people like she's yeah. she has a reason to be frustrated and we get to we get a window into that and yeah. he is totally it's totally reasonable that he has no idea <laughs> what the hell he's done wrong um yeah. it's just a very fair exploration of you know, intimacy, relationships, vulnerability, frustrations. <laughs> yeah, that's, I like that fair is, I think fair is right. And another thing that stands out like with the story to me is, you know, the class elements. A lot of times the best explorations in class are when they are so close. So instead mm. of having like the 1% versus like the, the bottom, you know, I just rewatched or I just watched Carnage, that uh, the French play that, Polanski directed and that's a that's a movie where it's like the one percent are kind of at odds with this couple that's like very clearly like the two percent you know what I mean they're they're up Mm. and they're they're so close but there's so many differences between that obviously it's different here but Vanessa Kirby and Chris Abbott like they have you know a maid that gets mentioned and they're like you know they have the ability they have like more items and so what do you make of like the class elements in this story? Good question. Sort of, yeah, yeah it's, it is. No, it is. It is. I, I also really like that upon reading the script that it's just such a slight difference, which is basically for Abigail and Tally, it's the difference of time, of having time. Uh, for Abigail has no time, uh, really hardly at all. She needs to just like steal any little, like steal moments to write, you know, like very, very early in the morning or late at night or in between chores. Like she has her 
her her her paper and her writing desk like moves all over the house in every place where she's working and that's her only kind of time to just release or enjoy herself a little bit versus Vanessa's character Tally has time boredom a little bit too because uh, she helps out at times but she also can go for long walks and spend time at her at her friend's house so I think perhaps that luxury of time that uh, Tally has is also probably what moves the story and makes her the more active sort of part of that love story in a way and kind of moves it forward there's parts in the short story and parts in the screenplay where she's like I've spent you know all this time thinking about all these things <laughs> and Abigail I do you agree uh, Catherine and Abigail is a little bit more like oh okay I'm catching up you know at times mm. <laughs> I'm catching up to all these mm. things that you've been pondering on so it creates this like different sort of rhythm and dynamic between the two characters that's interesting. I, I've never really thought about it that way. I think I was so struck when I read the, the, the script at an existence, I mean, Abigail's existence is such, such sharp contrast to my own in that she's able to experience and sometimes enjoy elaborate, uninterrupted thoughts you know I just was so struck by how fragmented my life is in in comparison so I felt like though she's busy all all day long she's almost never she's almost never interrupted by anyone she's living in an almost complete solitude you know Dyer will go out into the fields in the early hours and be there until sundown so I was sort of struck by and it's I felt illustrated in in the voiceover just the quiet of her mind and the, and the focus of her, of her mind. But then I suppose, so what I thought was so striking about what Tally brings is, is confidence and passion and is someone who demands you to engage with them, you know? And I think that's what gets her so flustered because she can dismiss Dyer. You know, they have a dynamic where they can, they can get themselves out of a, uncomfortable conversation pretty quickly there's like subtle rejections and it's over and then she can't quite escape what tally's asking of her and how tally engages with her i don't know there's something about that and it is so interesting how she did so much of it seated but i felt like she was demanding a kind of engagement but i don't know maybe it's that in that sense it's a study of two people who had time to be calm <laughs> you know um i don't know there's... she didn't look seated though because she's so tall yeah. <laughs> that's a fine point no I think I think what I meant by Catherine is more like because of having health around the house and not having the same obligations like there's a tiny bit more or at least like some sort of like sense of I'm going to choose what I do with my day in a different way I'm mm. going to choose choose to go on this visit I'm going to choose to make a friend and engage and like that that sort of gave her a little bit more freedom you know mm to move the relationship further yes and maybe to day yeah daydream mm. about another way of living yeah that's true i'm so rooted in my life or abigail as i should say yeah i was thinking about that today how the every great social movement starts with somebody with a good imagination mm. you know and our film ends with that idea that it's a good thing the imagination can always be cultivated and i think we, we talked about that a lot making this film that there were these people and they are a part of our history who were imagining 
other ways of living and, and other possibilities for themselves. And they never necessarily got anywhere near actually experiencing those kinds of lives. But it, it usually does start with them, those who can see something in a new way and imagine a better world for themselves. I was always asking myself that question about, about Abigail. How much does she know about the world beyond this farm? She uses a lot of sort of nautical references in her journal, but she's surely never seen the sea. You know, what is that relationship like? It's so hard to imagine today. How much do you know when you haven't had a formal education, when you're just getting whichever book, you know, sort of falls off the truck that passes through town? Do you have some kind of constant nagging sense that there's more? You're really not sure. Is it that innocent living, living in such a remote way? I don't know. I do find that interesting, that idea of Tally and Abigail's the differences between their abilities to daydream. And I think like you were kind of mentioning with Abigail's, if you're doing these repetitious tasks all day, then they become second nature in the way that your mind can wander in a way that I think. No, I was just going to say we had these meditative milking scenes where I always felt like we go back to the milking and then we get some really, that that's where we get some, some of the really like insightful moments for her. Um. Casey, you mentioned in the uh, Sundance Q&A about sort of the difference between how this script came to be and how scripts often come to be uh, where, you know, screenwriters are kind of writing something, giving it a period of time to see if they can get it off the ground and then, you know, having a very like hard and fast stopping point and then kind of being like, okay, I'm going to put that aside and move on to my next project and how this project really benefited from the opposite approach, which was like letting the writing marinate and sort of take its time? Well, there are people who have spent way more time thinking about and writing screenplays than I have. And I can hear their objections to what I'm about to say. But if you write more drafts, the writing gets better. So having taking that time means that you're going to have a more refined blueprint to start your, your movie with. It's just more carefully done. I I love that. I've been thinking about the script today and everything that's good. (laughs) Performances, directors, work, writing, you know, whether it's writing screenplays or writing novels, that, that everything that, I don't know if this makes sense, but it seems to me that everything that's good is embedded. It's what you don't notice. And you can't get there until you you chip, chip, chip away at all the crap that's showing off and that isn't like deeply known or learned. I don't know. I was thinking about that, about this script, as I've been talking about film so much the last few days. And, you know, why? Why, why, do, some fil- why do some scripts jump out of us when we, when we open them up? Why do Mona and I just, why were we desperate to be a part of this, you know? And I think one thing is that you can just feel the difference when people have really, when they've taken the time necessary and deeply considered something and they know it well. Like, I just can't identify like, oh, these are, this is the scene where they are saying, come around everybody and we'll show you what the old times were like, you know, like they, these guys know so much about this period, but they're not using the film to brag about it. It's just, deeply it's just in there in these subtle 
delicate ways and you can feel it in the film. And then Mona can use that as a road map to give us this texture that texture that we then see on the screen and articulate that uh, deep understanding in a visual way. You know, everything that the actors do is Or all, just ruin it. Or just ruin it, which she didn't do, thank fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's, and then we sit on the shoulders of all of this. This is the roadmap yeah. that we all use. And, yeah. and it's just, I, the more I talk about it, the more I just can't believe how lucky we are that we got to do something that people worked on for 15 years. Yeah, you know, I think the most interesting we conversation. Get to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, the most interesting conversation is not the one we're having. Is it different? No. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> Would be with Ron and Jim. I mean, so many of these questions, I think, oh, geez, let's hear what, what they have to say. But, you know, one thing I really love doing that I, I when we talk about this, I truths that feel embedded in a story sort of rather than casually tacked on top or not fully fledged you know something Mona and I talked about a lot was how do we how do we get this voiceover that feels so embedded in the script so delicately woven in how do we how do we do that weaving on camera you know or with the camera and mm -hmm. with my voice and Mona was so smart to have us do scratch recordings on set and then she would time tracking shots with the rhythm and the and the duration of these excerpts and so you know that's just one of those things where on the page i was like well good luck mona i don't know how you're gonna i don't know how you're gonna maintain this visually you how do you get it to feel so, so intricately woven into the story and um and i think she really nailed that um, i think i think often my crew thought i was losing my mind it's like, why are you rolling? Why are we like, stopping? And like, and, or why are we going? So, why is this? Why is this? You know, slow. This push so slow. Like, why is it moving so slowly? Just um, to, you know, closely, you know, creeping towards two women, um, plucking a chicken, and nothing is happening. Like, what is? Because you knew what, the voiceover was going to go on it. Yeah, because I had my yeah. my first AD, you know, timing it and, you know not tricking my, my my arm when you know and I knew that we had exact you know had a little time to spare so and I think that like I could have just approached said okay I'm going to deal with this later on I'm going to deal with this whole aspect of the film later on and we're just going to make the movie now and then we're going to find some way to, to 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 put that in when we need it or maybe we don't need it maybe it's not so important but I just I I didn't feel that way. I felt like um, when I read the script, it, it was an equal part as, as any of the other parts of the screenplay. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought it was great that there was so much voiceover, you know, like everyone, all the feedback on the script was always like, it's it's good, but there's too much voiceover. Um, maybe you should, you know, cut the voiceover. And and I was like, no, nah, I think we should have more. We have more, even more voiceover perhaps, you know, I think we should just really, I, I love that it was just drenched in it. Like when you think it's done, it's like, no, she starts on something else and we're just become just closer and closer to, to, to the character in that way. And I just thought it was in, enjoyable and then just a, a fun sort of you know, code that we had to crack. Like, how do we do this in an exciting way? And how do we do it, use it not as just a tool to to sort of guide the story but 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 something else like some some mm. some sensorial experience and did you do anything audio wise to kind of match the analog feel of the rest of the yeah. film with the voiceover audio oh definitely yeah it's it's a very sort of delicate sort of um constant like balance between 
like finding a sound if you're in a really internal moment with Abigail and there's voiceover and then um, find like a sound that takes her out of it or a sound that pulls you into that. For example, if the scratching, even though I'm, the camera is in, uh, could be a little bit further away from Abigail, but then the scratching of a pen on the paper is really heightened and, 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 and pulled up almost unnaturally in the mix. To me, that kind of gave me the feeling of being really close and internalized with Abigail, for example, or when she's trying to write and then we turn up like that apple peeling machine, you know, as much as possible to just be like this, like, a, you know, frustrating, <laughs> things like that. You're constantly like playing with, is, if this is an internal moment, then I feel like in, in memory, for example, like certain sounds are, are like, or smells or things like that are heightened in that way. So it's like a really fun, fun thing to play with. The score is a big part, I think, working in tandem with the voiceover. Um, I love the score and I love the, the song over yeah, the end credit too. scene. I looked it up. I tried to listen to it afterwards. It's not, I don't think it's out yet. Uh, Coming out really soon. Talk about working with Daniel Blumberg and I believe it's a clarinet, right? The main sort yeah. of instrument. Talk about how you kind of developed that. Can't speak well, highly enough of the score. Oh, that's so nice to hear. I mean, I, I loved working with Daniel and, and he, he came on board shortly after like you know I said yes to doing the film I said I want Daniel to do the score it's like the few components some components that I was like this is going to be really really uh, wonderful if I can have Catherine uh, and her voice and then Daniel and then you know if these things can come together this is going to be great early on also while working on the script and the putting together sort of my plan for how, what, what it was going to be like visually. And I was listening to this Stravinsky piece uh, for clarinets and, and I kept saying to Dalian, I feel like that's like, that's like Abigail. This sounds like this clarinet sounds like her. And, and I like that it's almost like a human, the clarinet can sometimes sound almost like human <laughs> in a way. And I thought, oh, the score needs to be in dialogue with, with the voiceover the whole time in some way or another. I sometimes playing against it, sometimes supporting it, but it definitely needs to be really kind of speaking to one another. Daniel, um, he, he would send me like two, three hour long improvisations with his musicians. I would listen to them walking to the studio and I was in the edit and then um, pull out a piece and edit to that and sort of let that in inspire the edit as well. And then send it back to him and then he would do another version of it and we would go back and forth and back and forth like that for um, a year so it's really great great <laughs> great experience to really just have again like the same with the voiceover making sure that it was just such a deep part of the film and not just like slammed on top to sort of make you feel this way or or, or, or another I love it so much oh, completely completely obsessed with it and also daniel is a marvelous performer he <laughs> he's is. our tinker he's yeah, the man yeah, who that. sells me the dress and he is so good <laughs> effortless he, he yeah he came on set and was making some music on set as well while we were shooting and uh and uh, we made him be in the movie <laughs> all the producers are in the movie <laughs> just every, you know and anyone who was like there and wasn't working i was like anyone who is not doing anything specifically needs to be in the scene you know the town scene everyone is like you, you if you know, you're here put on you're a here. bonnet and move yes. in front of the camera yes <laughs> if you can hear me put on a hat and walk yes. into the field 
That's, yeah. that's how you know a true indie film is the names uh-huh. are repeating in different sections and that's the credits right. aren't that long. That's and right. Exactly. It's supposed to be an indie movie and the credits are like 10 minutes long. You're like, wait a yeah. second now. Yeah. <laughs> You're just yeah. Like, yeah. Catherine, have you done voiceover before? Forgive me for not diving into all of your movies before this, but uh, is it? No, God, I don't think so. You know, I never thought about the fact that I'd never done it before when I did it for this film, but I don't think so no so you weren't like intimidated by the prospects of doing it for the first time or I was very intimidated but I guess I just never it never occurred to me that I'd never done it before (laughs) I was intimidated just because it just read so secret and internal private and I obviously we all have our internal chatter that goes on all day day in day out but what does it sound like (laughs) Is it our is it is it is it our speaking voice? Is it is it loud? Is it quiet? I didn't know what should it be different? Should it sound different from her speaking voice in the film? How will it fit in? How will I not fuck up this beauty on the page? You know, how will I help maintain this sort of interwoven feeling that I'm getting from reading it? So I started practicing at home and and the good thing about that is that nobody else has to hear it. And you get a lot of the really horrible ideas out of the way when no one's watching or listening. Um, It is a specific kind of misery to listen to your own voice over and over. It's like some kind of image of hell that you're just stuck somewhere with a lot of old answering machines thing. So I I didn't enjoy that, but it, it was helpful. And then it was really helpful on set to do those scratch recordings for Mona and for the timing of the shots just to just to have more practice. And then one of my favorite parts of making the film was was in post-production, just a couple of weeks, Mona and I spent together in New York and, and she, I don't know how, found enough money in the budget for us to really take the time we needed. And, and that was really, it was such a treat after a pretty rushed shoot to have this feeling of like, we can actually, we can actually breathe a little here and try to get this right. I love kind. Of, I love being in a bunker with people. You know, this is why I love making movies. It's like you just get a couple people obsessing over the same little thing for a while, and that time in the studio really felt like that. There was no one who uh, wasn't in, in full geek mode about getting it right between me, David, and Mona, and we just we just toiled away until I really basically like didn't have a voice anymore. <laughs> Nearly <laughs> lost my voice by the end. Um, it was definitely definitely sick of my voice by the end but clearly not anymore because i just rambled on for about 15 minutes about this <laughs> i got it back the love of the sound of my voice <laughs> oh boy yeah i will say that extends the writers too like when i'm transcribing a piece i'm i'm, I'm skipping my question my bumbling through questions i'm not reliving those i'm, I'm going it straight is to the answer so. yeah yeah yeah, yeah we all know yeah. it well Thanks for listening to Movie Maker. If you enjoyed this conversation, we encourage you to rate and review us. And while you're at it, head over to moviemaker.com where you can stay informed on the latest movie news and filmmaking advice. And one last thing, we're a print magazine. Yes, those still exist. You can find us on newsstands at Barnes & Noble, and you can also find more info on purchasing a subscription that'll come directly to your home, also at moviemaker.com. Take care.